People around the world have long been fascinated by the idea that there are strange creatures out there, creatures that may or may not exist. I'm talking, of course, about cryptids, things like Bigfoot hiding out in American forests, or sea serpents lurking just below the water in coastal towns. Despite the best efforts of monster-hunting TV shows and amateur sleuths, there may never be concrete proof that these creatures exist. But that doesn't stop anyone from analyzing strange photographs or odd carcasses and saying, maybe, just maybe, cryptids do exist. So can we explain these sightings with science? Joining me today is my guest, Dr. Darren Nash, paleontologist and author based in Southampton in the United Kingdom. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Just a note. This segment was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. For more information on how to join a future event, go to sciencefriday.com slash livestream. You literally wrote the book on this subject, which came out in 2016. It's called Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology, and the Reality Behind the Myths. How would you describe your relationship with cryptozoology? That's a very interesting question. Cryptozoology, the study of cryptids, the study of monsters, unknown animals, animals known only from anecdote, should be regarded as as a part of zoology, you know, as as part of my broad interest in zoology, living and extinct, uh, living and extinct animals. Um, yeah, for me, it was like, wow, are creatures like the, the the claimed sea serpents of the cryptozoological literature and Bigfoot and Yeti and so on, are they actual real animals? That's why I got interested as a as a younger person. So that's kind of like an amateur interest. As a uh, you know working scientist today. I do maintain an interest in that possibility that, you know, when people report sightings of these creatures, are they really describing encounters with unknown animals? I remain, you know, open to that idea to a degree and interested in it, certainly interested in any material evidence that people bring back, you know, whether you mean photographic evidence or, you know, things like hairs or DNA samples or whatever. But for me, it's kind of mostly moved into something that is actually kind of difficult to compartmentalize because basically I think our interest in mystery animals is a part of culture so it's uh, if you're studying accounts um, of mystery creatures whether whether by accounts I mean you know like stories legends or whether I mean people's claims you know modern encounters kind of modern folklore urban folklore whatever you know what subject is that is that kind of social anthropology and those of us interested in this subject discuss this all the time it's like where are we going with this field are we sure that it's not part of zoology is it still connected to zoology or are we completely wrong in that assumption and is it all to do with to do with culture so um so part of what I'm doing kind of feels like a kind of meta science. It's like we're studying the studiers, we're studying the cryptozoologists themselves, and we're studying what they say, and we're also studying the um, you know the body of evidence, the, the the claimed accounts. But yes, it's for me, it's quite like a confusing and messy subject. And would you describe yourself as a skeptic? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, uh, totally a skeptic. Um, and I think that unfortunately today, that's kind of a loaded term. I mean, never mind its role in, you know, the culture wars and what certain self-proclaimed skeptics, you know, the way they've used the term, it's related to all kinds of uh, sometimes problematic areas. But in terms of my general approach, you know, to science, I mean, it's it's right to be sceptical. You shouldn't accept anything 
without uh, weighing up uh, the evidence for it. W- when people talk about, you know, what does it mean to be sceptical of cryptozoological evidence? I-, I know many people that are interested in mystery animals that are like, will be prepared to say, I am convinced that, for example, I am convinced that the Yeti is real because the eyewitness um, encounters are just so plausible sounding and the, you know, the ecology of the animal makes sense. You know, there are people that hold that position and i would say as you know from a skeptical position i can understand that point of view i can understand that you say that yeah a lot of these accounts like sound really good but in order to sort of lean towards being you know convinced of the reality of the alleged creature i'm going to need you know a lot more convincing evidence not not just accounts not anecdotes not even photographs but you're going to have to have uh, actual physical evidence the same as we have for the animal species that we have recognized as valid so yeah I'm definitely on the skeptical side of things. But that's not the same as being dismissive. I'm Sophie Bushwick, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So let's get into one of the most famous cryptids, the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, There's a very famous photo from 1934 that looks like a long-necked dinosaur is poking out from Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands. And people have come up with theories for what this creature could be for decades. So what do you think that this photo of the Loch Ness Monster really is? Yeah, you're talking about the most famous Nessie photo and probably the most famous so-called monster photo, the the surgeon's photo taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson in April 1934. And whole books have been written just about this this photograph alone. And I I always think an interesting thing worth saying about photos, claimed photos of monsters, is that unless you're really, really into the subject, you kind of pick up just your osmosis like, didn't someone show that was a hoax? Isn't there a story about it being a hoax? Yeah, I think so. That's the end of the story. Whereas if you really get into it, the 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 stories are they're, they're just they're so complicated. So um, it's been claimed over the years that the uh, object in that photo might be quite large, like might be as much as sort of like a, a meter tall above the surface of the water. Finding the actual original copies of the photo have always like been a kind of holy grail because. Normally, you see this like tightly cropped version where the monster is quite big, but you can see from the size of the ripples, you can infer, you don't have to be an expert on wave dynamics or anything, but you can work out that the object isn't very big. The water doesn't look, it doesn't look big. It's not big water. So um, I think that the object is tiny, like 30 centimeters tall or something. Seen within that context, you know, some people have said, could it be like the tail of a diving otter or the neck of a water bird or something? And I've never been convinced by those. The object just doesn't look right for that. So in the 1990s, early 1990s, a man called Christian Sperling came forward and said that he, together with his stepbrother and uh, stepfather, they'd deliberately hoaxed this and they'd used a little model clockwork submarine with a model monster's head made of plastic wood which was a thing in the 1930s it did exist in 1934 they made this and they set it up in the lock in a little kind of bay where they thought the ripples would make the object look quite large and they said that in the original photo they deliberately did it so you could see that it was Loch Ness you could see the the bank on the opposite shore and um, that they took these photos, they deliberately used the camera belonging to uh, Dr. Wilson, R.K. Wilson, because as a London-based, I mean, he was called the surgeon, he was actually a medical practitioner of a different kind involved in, he was a gynecologist, but uh, uh, he was seen as like a very sort of reputable source, a a good person to, to claim 
that he'd taken the photos and apparently he had a great sense of humor and he was more than happy to play along with this there's a there's a backstory to the taking of the photograph which is that christian sperling's stepfather uh, marmaduke weatherall had also in 1934, he'd taken some photos of fake Nessie footprints on the shore of the lock made with a hippo foot. He worked at the time for the Daily Mail newspaper. He thought it was all a bit of a laugh and the Daily Mail would go along with it. And, you know, front page of the Daily Mail, you know, Nessie's Nessie footprints found. But they didn't. They kind of dropped him in it. And they said, this is an obvious hoax. This man is a charlatan. <laughs> and, uh, and he wasn't very happy about that. So the story is that together with his son and his um, stepson, he was involved in the hoaxing of this submarine photo. More recently, uncropped versions of the photo have been found, and they do confirm that you can see the bank on the other side. They seem to confirm what Christian Sperling said. And in uh, high-resolution scans of the photo, you can see wires attached to the front and back of the object. So, of course, if you're going to, like, release a model submarine into the lock and just let it, you know, pootle away into the water. You don't want it to just like disappear. Loch Ness is, is like more than a kilometre wide. You want to control it. So it makes sense that you have wires. Uh, and there's there's even more to the story than that. There's uh, I'm not going to carry on with it, but I, I just say there is a compelling paper trail which demonstrates that Christian Sperling's story about it being hoaxed in 1934, about R.K. Wilson being a stooge who didn't really take the photo but was happy to say that he did, there is backup for this idea. So the most famous Nessie photograph is not a photo of an animal. It is indeed uh, quite good hoax, or quite good, I mean, an, an okay hoax. We have to take a break, and when we come back, continuing our conversation with Dr. Darren Nash on the science behind some of our favorite cryptid stories. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday, and I'm Sophie Bushwick. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Darren Nash, paleontologist and author, talking about the science behind famous cryptid sightings. And we have a question about faked evidence from Lara in Santa Clara, California. Hi there. I'm wondering what's the best faked evidence for a crypto that you've heard of? Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great question, and uh, because there's there's quite a few, um, so I'm going to tell you about my favourite photo, my favourite indisputable hoax, and it's the Robert Lasseric 1964 Hook Island sea monster photo. So you probably haven't heard of this one, but it's the best sea monster photo ever taken. I, I say photo; it's not a photo; it's actually a sequence of photos. So in 1964, a French man named Robert Lasseric went on vacation with his family and his friend Hank de Jong to Hook Island, which is part of Queensland, Australia. And in Stonehaven Bay, Hook Island, um, Lasseric said that they all discovered this gigantic tadpole-shaped monster resting in the lagoon. And if you use your favourite internet search engine and just do Hook Island Sea Monster, you'll see photographs of this immense, very dark tadpole-shaped monster sat at the bottom of the lagoon with a person and a little boat behind it. And like I say, it's part of a sequence. They approach quite closely to this creature. They look down on its head from above. You can see it's got two little pale eyes. They said that at the base of its tail, there was a big white scrape, and they reckoned it it had suffered from a collision with a ship and it was resting in the lagoon. The Serik and Jong supposedly dove and you know went up close to the creature um, underwater and it opened its mouth and swam towards them and so they retreated. 
Um, and the photos, are, they're just great. I mean, they, they really look like photos of a real sea monster. There's a prominent person in the history of cryptozoology called Dr. Bernard Hoovermans. He was the guy who wrote the sort of pioneering volumes on the subject, mostly during the 1950s, died in 2001. And he was based in France. And for his 1968 book, in the wake of the sea serpents, he found out as much as he could about Laceric because he was really interested in this Hook Island sea monster story. And um, now this is a case where how much circumstantial evidence do you need to be convinced of something? Hooverman's found that Laceric was regarded by every, everyone that he was sort of involved with and knew as kind of an untrustworthy character. He left various unpaid debts. He was wanted by Interpol. So on the one hand, you could say, well, being a shady character doesn't stop you from encountering a real sea monster. But Laceric told people before leaving France that he was going to go away and make money from a hoax involving a sea monster. And I think... <laughs> And I think I think that's slightly suspicious. A slightly suspicious. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, on that basis, Hoovermans concluded that it probably was a hoax. So did Hoovermans's mentor and friend Ivan T. Sanderson, who also wrote widely about mystery animals. And they both tried to come up with uh, various explanations as to how it could have been hoaxed. And what's most likely is that they used some kind of like giant plastic sheeting or giant bag-like structure that you could tow along and make it look kind of like tadpole shaped. Let's move from from the sea uh, back onto land and talk about possibly the most famous cryptid here in the U.S., Bigfoot. So similar to the Loch Ness Monster, one of the most famous pieces of uh, quote unquote evidence that exists is this old video uh, of what looks like some sort of ape walking in the forest. And many skeptics think that this video was completely faked. What's your take on the Bigfoot tape? Hey, yeah, um, you're going to have to like tell me when to stop talking because, again, th th there's whole books written about this. So Sophie is describing there the Patterson film, sometimes called the Patterson-Gimlin film or the PG film. It was supposedly taken on October 20th, 1967. And so we just celebrated the 54th um, anniversary of when they're supposed to have filmed it. So this was at Bluff Creek in California. Roger Patterson and Bob Giblin specifically went to Bluff Creek because of like big activity that was supposed to have happened, you know, there before. So Northern California is meant to be uh, one of the hotspots for Bigfoot. So their story is they were specifically looking for Bigfoot. They're on their horses. They walk into, into Bluff Creek alongside the creek of Bluff Creek and squatting at the side, possibly drinking. They see an obviously female Bigfoot who stands up and strides like from left to right um, and just keeps walking. She just keeps going. Patterson, according to some accounts, his horse or pony was scared and his horse like, you know, reared and, and Patterson fell off. But he managed to get the camera. We know exactly what kind of camera uh, he used a huge amount of research has been done on the camera and its frame rate, which is something that's very important to how the the object in the film looks. And he recorded about a minute of, of footage of this creature affectionately known as Patty to people in the Bigfoot community. And um, I'm sure most of you know, know the footage. In particular, you probably know frame 352, which is the famous 
shot where she's striding like with her legs, uh, arms even. Um, iconic bit of a Americana, really. So among those people that are quite committed to the existence of Bigfoot, the Patterson film is, um, you know, one of the best bits of evidence we have. And there are people that include qualified primatologists, anthropologists, people that are experts in movement and, and, and stuff. They have actually said that this doesn't have the proportions of a human. You know, it's its arms are like longer than those of humans. Its uh, head to total height ratio is slightly different from that of humans. Aspects of its musculature, the movement of its pelt and various other of its parts look absolutely accurate. Its gait is not like that of a human. It's walking with a compliant gait, which means it's like bending its knees in a certain way. And it's got like a particular kind of stride that's different from our species. That's the kind of pro Bigfoot stance. Now, on the other side of things, the sceptical side of things and the sort of way I've tended to lean in my more recent writings, because I've flipped and flopped on this on this footage, I've been very inconsistent on this. My current thinking is that a lot of the things that are said to be like compelling and anatomically interesting about it could actually be faked by a person in moving in a particular way. So things like like walking with a compliant gait, like moving with bent limbs and swinging your arms a lot and stuff, you know, a person can do that. This claim about the proportions being utterly different from Homo sapiens is, is not true. The proportions are not that different from us. And we've got this massive amount of circumstantial data compiled by an author called Greg Long, who wrote a book called The Making of Bigfoot. I think it was published in 2004. Not a very fun read. I didn't like the book at all. But um, he does a really good job of showing that this is an important thing for a lot of these cryptozoological stories. Roger Patterson is not just some guy with a camera. He's not a guy who goes into the woods and, oh, this Bigfoot gets on film. He's someone who's got like years and years of background of being obsessed with Bigfoot and specifically of drawing Bigfoot, building life-size Bigfoot illustrations, and of basically using Bigfoot as a way of making money. In a book that he published in 1966, that's a year before he made this film, Patterson drew the William Rowe encounter from the late 50s. So William Rowe is this guy who in Canada claims that he observes an obviously female Bigfoot in a forest clearing. She's eating leaves and then she realizes she's being watched and stands up and strides across the clearing and, and gave quite a good description of what he saw to his daughter, who drew a very distinctively proportioned Bigfoot. And Patterson drew his take on the rowing counter in 66. And it's basically almost like a kind of prototype storyboarded version of what Patterson filmed in 1967. So I can't shake this. I can't like lose the importance, the potential importance of uh, this whole aspect of the story. If, if Patterson was just some guy who went into the woods and just like recorded the best Bigfoot film ever, then maybe it would seem more powerful. But the fact that he's got this long background of like looking for Bigfoot, of making films about Bigfoot. He's excellent artist, designer, and craftsman. You, you just you just can't shake that that fact. I think. 
And even today, there's people who believe in Bigfoot. There's TV shows all about looking for Bigfoot. It's, it's as we've said, it's one of the most famous cryptids out there. So why do you think it's Bigfoot that's gotten this level of fame? What is it about this particular creature that's captured the imagination? Yeah, I would say interest in Bigfoot and possibly belief in Bigfoot is is on the up, and not just in your country and Canada as well, but um, probably worldwide. Why is Bigfoot so fascinating? I think, first of all, because it's a gateway drug, if you like, to <laughs> a her, gateway to, cryptid. A gateway, a gateway cryptid, even better. Yeah, a gateway cryptid to um, the whole subject of mystery animals. So I think most people are naturally quite interested in all these things that are claimed to exist by some people. And Bigfoot is, you know, at the front of the list. That's so like one of the first things that people, you know, they'll they'll hear about that or read about that before they will alleged sauropod dinosaurs of the Congo or the Mongolian death worm or the roping of New Guinea. Then secondly, if the claims about Bigfoot are true, well, this would be, were it real, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, it would have to be one of the most remarkable creatures on the planet. We're pretty amazing animals and we're (laughs) really interested in things like, you know, bears, tigers and gorillas and stuff. Bigfoot is like all of those things combined into one. You're talking about a human-shaped creature that is able to live in environments where we know we can't survive due to the extremities of you know cold and the elements and whatnot. And it's, it's supposed to be incredibly vocal, able to like use possibly infrasound, as well as like long distance, these remarkable like howls. There's claims that it's like a tool user, a tool maker, that it's very good at throwing things, that it's basically kind of like a superhuman creature But again, if you are living in a world where you imagine that Bigfoot is real, I think if you're really into it, you probably can't stop thinking about it. It's like every day you're pondering Bigfoot. It's like, wow, this thing. Oh, it's also super terrifying and probably predatory. It's not like in Harry and the Hendersons, this like friendly, you know, berry eating um, vegan creature. It's meant to be, um, yeah, truly like predatory and to probably, probably be responsible for loads of human disappearances. I'm Sophie Bushwick, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'd like to talk about the conspiracy side of cryptozoology. Many of us have grappled with how dangerous pseudoscience can be during this pandemic. And I don't think that looking for Bigfoot is as dangerous as people ignoring the scientific evidence on COVID-19. But I am wondering how you feel about this conspiracy side of cryptozoology and if it could be a gateway to other types of more harmful pseudoscience. Yeah, that is something that has been considered quite a lot. And there's different opinions on it. So there is a a book called Abominable Science, uh, a skeptical approach to cryptozoology. And the two authors in the final chapter, one of them says, Loxton says, he thinks cryptozoology is mostly harmless. And that even if people going in search of Bigfoot aren't really doing anything particularly useful, they're not doing any harm. And they are actually doing a greater good because they're making themselves happier they're connecting with the wilderness the more connection people have with wild places the more likely they are to you know want to hopefully preserve it whereas prothero says the opposite he says that it has been shown there are studies demonstrating this that say a belief in bigfoot is connected 
to beliefs in other things that are often regarded as part of the supernatural or the paranormal and that belief in those is connected with a broader swathe of things that we kind of generally don't really want to persist in culture like you know people that are big on like a belief in ufos and therefore tend to have like an interest in conspiracy theories and then it's only like a couple of steps really before you are into a sort of problematic area so basically the argument there is something like interest in bigfoot is thin end of the wedge and that's not difficult to demonstrate if you pick up a book there's loads of it's called the unexplained you know you'll buy them if you're interested in bigfoot because they got they got sections on bigfoot but then you know also in the same uh the same work they will you know have stuff on like you know government conspiracies and are the illuminati real and are we controlled by lizard people and, and like i say it's only a couple of steps from there before you get to something that's uh probably not good for society as a whole so and, and i and i i don't know either way I, I would say it's kind of a mix of both things it's like a lot of cryptozoologists are perfectly sensible even pro-science people even qualified scientists and then there are others who are the opposite of that so there isn't a simple answer that's about all the time we have for now uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Darren Nash, paleontologist and author based in Southampton in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great fun.